Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The benchmark to qualify for a working visa for Australia was £2,000 in the bank. So with a goal in her sights, 19-year-old Jessica Vegan wrote it down and set about achieving it. It was a case of, OK, I'll keep working until I get the visa, and then the moment I get the visa, I hand my notice in and I'm gone. She took a job waitressing in a high-class London restaurant. It had sweeping views across the capital, but Jess had bigger plans on the horizon. And after eight months of serving meals and clearing tables, true to her word, her resignation was handed in. In May 2000, she boarded a plane to Brisbane, where her brother Aaron was living at the time. I knew I'd have to work, um, because I knew two grand wasn't going to last me a year, so it was just kind of finding finding work. And yeah, I probably had an itinerary of kind of, okay, I'll travel this bit, work here, travel this bit, work here. And that's how she ended up in Childers. Childers was known for that's where backpackers go to make money and like from what I can remember I'm pretty sure you arrive at the hostel and they pretty much guarantee you work um not guarantee you what work but they guarantee you work so I think the idea was to work for kind of two or three weeks um just to top the funds up before I before I carried on. She arrived three days before the fire and lucked in immediately in the allocation of work. Being told you're picking avocados was a pretty good result. Better on the knees and the hands. Jess figured this farming caper wasn't so bad after all. And the day of June 22 was no different. A long day in Queensland's winter sun, surrounded by good company and plenty of laughs. I just remember cooking some backpacker concoction I can't remember what and then chatting and I mean the thing I do remember about that evening is playing um sort of Jenga with Stacey and Kelly who are a couple of twins and yeah I remember playing with them and just having a really good evening um sort of chatting to them and and that was kind of the first time I'd really started talking to people properly in that evening. Stacey and Kelly were Stacey and Kelly Slark, twin sisters from a small town called Lake Grace in Western Australia's Wheatbelt region, about 350 kilometres inland from Perth. They'd been travelling across the country together and arrived in Childers on the 18th of June. I think that was the first evening where it was kind of, okay, like just just spending time with people. So they, they're probably the first people whose names I knew. You know, there are a couple of others around, you know, but they were very... They're definitely the ones that stick in my mind as one of the first. The Slark twins spent the evening playing Jenga with Jess. That's the game where you use blocks to build a tower and then you take it in turns to remove a piece and place it on top. It's the last thing they did before heading to bed around 10 o'clock. 
Kelly and Stacey were among the guests in room seven, where all 10 assigned to that room died in the fire. You must have been, like, I guess, one of the last people that I spoke to. Yeah. Yeah. And so have you, have you kind of thought back on that? I mean, I certainly, of all the people that died, they are the ones that are sort of the strongest in my mind. And afterwards, you know, I contacted their family very soon afterwards just to tell them that I had sort of chatted to them and spent time with them. So, no, I hadn't I hadn't actually thought that. Um, I'd kind of thought of it the other way around, that I, I saw them really, you know, really soon before they died. I hadn't thought that I was one of the last people that they had ever spoken to. You kind of saw it as, as they were one of the first people you spoke to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's kind of a nice way, of, nice way of looking at it. Mm. Were they in good spirits? Yeah, very, very. I do remember them being very happy and very friendly as well. You know. Um... Oh, this is going to be quite hard. <laughs> I can imagine it would be upsetting, sort of remembering back on interaction yeah. with. With those two girls in particular. Yeah, I think with those two. Um yeah, they made an impression. They were um I do, I remember them being really warm and really friendly and and very happy. Um yeah, like I do, I think um yeah, that was good. <laughs> good memory. Yeah. They were the only two Australians killed in the fire. Subsequently, it would be their deaths that were used to prosecute Robert Long on the charges of arson and murder when the case eventually went to trial almost two years later. For Jess, it's taken the full 20 years since the fire to finally feel comfortable talking about it. In hostels, it's it's like it's funny. At home, sometimes I can't sleep, but in hostels, I just pull the duvet over my head, shove in earplugs. And sleep solidly until I have to until I have to get up. You know, I don't really notice when other people come in and out of the room as long as I've got that blanket over my head blocking out the light. So, um, if I was in the room earlier, that's what I'd do. I don't remember there being. Uh, so I wake up hearing what sounds like somebody setting fireworks off right outside the bedroom, and you know I'm lying there and I'm thinking, "Oh, you absolute dicks." Like, you know, like it's really a, like everybody is working. Like, why would you set fireworks off? Like, you know that everybody's working here. You know, everybody has to be up really early. And I don't know how long I lay there for. And then it got louder and it got louder. And I remember thinking, fucking hell, they're actually probably setting them off in the lounge. Um, that's really because it's really loud. Like, that can't possibly be. I can't possibly be outside because that's ridiculous, you know, but I'm still, I've still got my earplugs in. I'm still really sort of coming out of this sleep. And and then Michelle, who's one of the girls who's in my room, sort of she gets up, you know, and, and I think it's dark and I think she turned the light on and I think the light actually did go on at that point and then opens the door <laughs> to the room, slams it again and just says, fuck, fuck, fuck. And at that, the, like the, the panic and the fear and the instant kind of her reaction is what got me out of bed. She suddenly jolted into action. You know, at that point, you don't know. You just know you've got to get out. And so I went and 
like from that moment I don't remember any interaction with any of my roommates at all I only sort of remember my own sort of reaction to it which was that I opened the door I stepped out and the smoke was just like a wall like you you know whenever you're taught about fire when you're a child it's always you know you've got to drop drop down to the floor because that's where the smoke is going to be less and I just remember this being just a wall like there was no no sense of actually you know there's any difference between standing up or sitting down or you know so some things like in terms of like okay I've got to get out of here there was still a sense of okay well how do I get out of here do I, you know but those it, it, none of that was a conscious reaction it was just I've got to get out and then opening it and then just realizing that I had no choice the only way out of this building was to go through that wall and into that wall of smoke it just was one big thick thing of smoke are you following someone or are you no I'm on my own and I don't you know I don't remember anybody around me anybody behind me anybody in front of me and like I say I lose I, you know I'd lost any sense of my roommates I don't know if they went out before me or after me I don't know and uh, no I, I you know I knew I had to get out but I hadn't been there that long and I didn't know the way out so I knew so our room was on the back of the hostel and the only way that I knew out was the front and the fire was underneath and in between you know I knew I knew instinctively I didn't have um much time to you know I knew that there was no way that I was going to make it to the front because a I couldn't see and B, there was no real oxygen. And I, I didn't really know how I would get to that entrance. So, or exit, I guess. You know, so I kind of, I, I remember just thinking, I, I know I'm not going to make this. And I crawled a little bit along and just thought, and then I remember, like, I don't know. I don't know how long I was there. Like, everything is just almost in like a moment that is suspended and I just remember a set moment where I suddenly realized I wasn't going to make it um and it was this immense sudden realization that that I was going to die and but something happens in that moment and and in that moment, I kind of, I just, instead of crawling, I sat down on the floor. And I thought, right, okay, this is it. Um, and I can remember thinking, I didn't think it would end like this. I, d- I never, you know, I never envisaged dying like this. It was when this sudden intense realisation happened, and I sat on that floor and I thought, right, I suddenly experienced the most intense feeling of calm and everything just suddenly stopped you know I stopped struggling I stopped trying to get anywhere and I saw you know it was the it was the standard sort of in my head there is this you know calm and black space like the smoke didn't then seem to be there everything was was just a 
calm, black space. And in that moment, it's funny because I, the fear stopped. Um, it was just a moment of utter immense calm and and you feel you I felt like just a deep love and all the things that I was fearful of um which are the things that you know you're not going to see family again and you're not going to see friends again and everything that you've done everything you've worked for is going and um it, it, it stops to be an issue so I stopped you know it's not that I didn't love people and it's not that I didn't care it's just that that becomes irrelevant in that moment it's like you know I sort of knew that everything was okay and it would be okay um um, you know sometimes you have conversations and people sort of said okay on a scale of one to ten how close have you ever come to dying I, I feel in that moment I was there. I touched it. I was it was so close. It was, you know, it, 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 like I had experienced that moment of, of just nearly stepping over that threshold. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an incredible account of what you went through. So you sit down, well, how do you manage to get out there so in that moment someone took my hand and I don't remember them coming or you know I just the next thing I knew was that there was a hand in mine that was cool and calm and reassuring and someone said and this person who was a man said crawl to the end and when you hit the wall, turn left. And I remember saying to left, because the exit was right. The only exit I knew was right, which was the front of the hostel. And he said, yes, left. And I had no option. And I just, in that moment, I just, okay, like that's where I've got to go. Um, and it was, you know, it was, I was going to die anyway. So what was the worst that could happen? And so I did. So I got down, I crawled, and I had no idea for how long. I just crawled and I hit the wall and I turned left and left was a fire exit. And suddenly I just remember stepping out and looking and there were so many people, you know, just all, all on the grass and I, you know, like standing around and I just, just remember looking and thinking, how did all these people get here? But I was out and I can remember like the, the burning, sort of my throat burning. And just standing there, sort of just being really like, you know, you don't really comprehend what's happened. And I remember standing out on the lawn at the back and then watching this fire. And it was at the, you know, it was only on the bottom floor at that point, but big. You know, you could see it was it was huge. And then Michelle came out. So she must have been behind me. Um, you know, and I remember seeing her giving her a huge hug. And then we just stood there and watched and I remember thinking god I hope you know I well actually you know you don't even think I hope everyone's out you just assume that they are and then yeah and I remember watching and watching and then all of a sudden this huge explosion 
And I remember the windows, sort of the fire suddenly going from that bottom floor right the way up and out in like a, an instant. And in that moment, accepting that I had nothing. Um, and later on, talking to firemen, I think it's when the gases, they get so hot that they suddenly ignite and, and essentially explode. And I think I think that was the moment that happened. But I remember standing there and and then, you know, just just wondering what on earth, you know, what I was going to do. But also looking around me and seeing there were a lot of other people in the same situation. So but feeling quite kind of shell shocked, pretty much, um, you know, just standing and, and wondering, well, maybe not even wondering, but just kind of absorbing this moment. Soon after, she borrowed a fellow backpacker's mobile phone and called her brother. She told him what had happened and assured him she was okay. If she's honest with herself, she knows she wasn't. She merely survived the terror. Her trauma was only just beginning. And we're kind of talking and, and then watching the news and it's like, you know, and then suddenly it was like six people are missing. We're like, no, you know, up till then, I think we'd all just hoped you know, they they were either around and nobody knew where they are or they'd been in the hospital and it was like, you know, we're watching the news and the news sort of says, right, six people are missing and then eight and then 12 and then 50 and eight, then suddenly, you know, but you don't know, you don't know if the news is right. Um, and then I think, I think it was a policeman came and spoke to us sort of face to face and said, you know, was giving sort of first-hand account so it wasn't new you know it wasn't on the news we weren't learning from the news and said uh, and yeah 15 people are missing and I just remember people breaking down you know and sort of thinking like fuck hell this yeah you don't you know because you, you it doesn't hit it doesn't hit until then um in terms of like what has actually happened and then it's just the day just carries on, you know, like like life, you're alive and life is there. But it's like I, I don't know quite what happens to your mind at that point, because it's kind of really separated from what actually has happened and what goes on. And I think that the time that emotionally for me, it really hit where there were flat, you know, there was a, a bench where loads and loads of flowers were starting to pile up. And I'm saying, oh, I'd really like, because I didn't know. And I'm saying, oh, I'd quite like to see that. So I went for a walk to go and have a look on my own. And then looking at these flowers and then just like absolutely breaking. Like, you know, just standing there. And I think that's the moment I was like, fuck. Like, I hadn't felt really anything until that moment. And there was a woman there. Um, I'm very glad she was there because, <laughs> yeah, because she just gave me a huge hug. And, oh, God. It's amazing that 20 years on, you can still feel this strongly. But, um, yeah, she gave me a hug and I sobbed, like absolutely sobbed in her arms. And that moment of of suddenly realising or suddenly feeling the absolute intensity of the emotions of what had happened. And I don't know if that was on the same day or the next day or how long after that was. 
but that for me certainly stands out as the the moment of suddenly just feeling sort of really quite desperate. Put yourself in Jess's shoes. Well, actually, that's the thing. She didn't have any shoes. Everything she brought with her to Childers was gone. She was alone. And as we heard just before, she's quite introverted and only really started reaching out to people hours earlier. And then she sat in a strange building that was under attack by fire and smoke and reconciled with herself that her time was up. She'd prepared to die, and then she didn't. She cheated death somehow found a way out but was again on her own lonely in a small town in a foreign country with nothing to her name but that's what's special about this story right it's people like jess that the people of childers came to support the absent the vulnerable the confused the community just wrapped their arms around the survivors and embraced them as their own how's childers changed you I think it's made me very aware of how we don't know when we're going to die. I think, you know, up to then, perhaps, you know, you don't really think about it. You know, I think when you're a teenager, you feel a bit invincible. You do stupid things. You don't really think about the consequences. Um, I mean, death's just not really something that's on your mind, particularly. I I heard it described really well in terms of when these big events happen and that somebody said you lose the coherence of the narrative of your life and I think that's the best way I can describe it is that you know one day you've got this plan and you're doing stuff and you're working and you're aiming to go traveling and you know and then you're traveling and and you've got this whole kind of vision of what's going to happen and that's still there and then two hours later you're standing outside the front of a burning hostel in your teddy bear pajamas without a passport and 15 people are dead you know, and it, that speed of how that happens, I think it made me very vulnerable. The, you know, the psych reports afterwards that had to happen um, for sort of the court case and everything that went on after that have stated, you know, that it, that I probably had a year of PTSD. I think realistically that was much more like five or six. Um, the aftermath was... You know, I can remember like a lot of sort of because I write a diary and sort of feeling very, very detached from everyone and everything. You know, I felt this constant sense of of real kind of sadness. And then later on, that sadness turned to nothing, like just blank. And in my diaries, I've written, you know, I just wish I'd feel again because I feel nothing, like absolutely nothing, like completely flat and emotionless and and detached from everything around. And so for a long time, I felt very much on the outside looking in, in my master's sort of being in my dorm room and just, you know, going through the day, doing my classes, doing what I needed to do. And then it just literally being in a ball on my bed in floods of tears and then getting up the next morning doing the same thing and and not really feeling able to tell anyone. I think, you know, there's a sense that when you that nobody will understand and and people couldn't possibly understand if they hadn't been through it. But then also a huge sense of protection about the people. Like I didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't 
want to worry them and I didn't want them to worry about me or to feel in any way responsible for me so I kind of I held everything and I was like I'm okay like you know it's uh, like I'm traveling and everything's fine but those feelings I, I think I held very much to myself and my diary and then longer term I think the tendencies I think I have on it are just to live life at warp speed but it doesn't mean that I'm careless or reckless with what is here now because I think it's so short and so easily lost so easily ended that it makes me live very fully but also possibly with a slight sense of manicness that I have to fit everything in you know um yes it's hugely emotional it's traumatic I've never up until eight weeks ago (laughs) ever sorted counseling for it ever um never really spoken about it you know a lot of my friends don't know about it other than you know a few a couple of them know a very very high level very brief account I've never spoken to anybody like I have with you on about it um you know when you do have something like that I think you do live more fully I live maybe less so now to such an intense feeling about it but I always felt like I had to live for the 15 people that died um almost to make up for the fact that they died I had to experience more you know um and make sure I didn't waste a second of it so yeah I think that's that's what it's given me from that 15 people died at the Palace Hostel on June 23, 2000. It's one of the worst fatal fires in Australian history. As you'll hear later in the podcast, police hunted, caught, charged and prosecuted Robert Long on the charge of arson and the murder of both Kelly and Stacey Slark. He's doing 20 years behind bars, but that doesn't bring the Slark twins back. He doesn't return any of the other 13 victims to their families or loved ones. Nor does it mend the psychological scars endured by people like Jess, who managed to defy the odds and escape the inferno. We can only hope that time will continue to be therapeutic for everyone involved. It's been a pleasure to bring Jess's story to you in this episode. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. Please, if you're near Childers or considering a visit, stop into the memorial to the 15 victims and pay your respects. It's managed and maintained by the Bundaberg Regional Council, who I thank for their support in putting together this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your family and friends about the show. Thanks for listening. I look forward to bringing you more amazing stories from this major chapter in Australian history. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.